I want to take a break from the podcast right now and I want to give you a gift. I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just, I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for, for being a listener and hanging out with me. So the code podcast10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com, your next order of protein powder. You can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. So we don't use fillers, emulsifiers, no fortified vitamins or minerals. It's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane. So it's three ingredients. With my grass-fed beef isolate, that's 100% grass-fed beef, and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth. So just heat and water. And we dehydrate it, that end product to get that collagen-rich protein powder that your whole family can drink. It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it if I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, and I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you wanna give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and wanna take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is gonna get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Be Well by Kelly podcast. We made it to 2021. It feels like we're having a little bit of 2020 dragged into 2021, but we are going to move through it with today's guest, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She is a certified fertility awareness educator and a holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, and she's super fun to follow on Instagram at Fertility Friday. So without further ado, let's welcome Lisa to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. You know that I am down a rabbit hole when it comes to women's health, fertility, infertility, pregnancy. Obviously, it's that season of life for me. I'm a few weeks away from giving birth to baby number two. And today's guest is someone that I have been following along 
with for a long time and just a beacon of knowledge and a, and a bright light on Instagram. So someone you should definitely follow. Today's guest is Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She's a certified fertility awareness educator, a holistic reproductive health practitioner, and the author of The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. She helps health-conscious women discover their connection between their menstrual cycles and their overall health so they can ditch hormonal birth control forever. Unfortunately, our education system has failed to teach us about our fertility. So she's here to empower and educate you to take control of your fertility. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, it was super fun before we got started here. Lisa and I were talking about the fact that she has two boys and I'm going to have two boys and she doesn't need a gym membership. And I was saying that I was chasing Sebastian on his scooter and someone looked at me and went, maybe don't bring the scooter to the park when you're (laughs) nine months pregnant. (laughs) I'm usually the mom where like my child has jumped off something extremely high or they're like at the top of the tree and they're like, who's parent? Yeah. Where's the parrot? <laughs> yeah. That's mine. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They're okay. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, I'm like the helicopter parent. I'm like, where's my child? No, I know. I think I think it takes time and it's like boys, they they beat you down until you're like, whatever, we'll just end up at the ER if we end up in the ER. <laughs> well, it's like they I don't know. My experience has been that they're very outgoing, at least mine are. And yeah. so it's like there's only so many times that like now, if 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 someone gets hurt and they're crying, I'm like looking at them, like, "Are you bleeding?" Yeah. Or if they're bleeding, it's like, "Okay, how big is the cut?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's Are good. Bone sticking out. Yeah. No, yeah. Okay, go back to play. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it so much. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to talk about our boys all day long, and um, you know, I'm obviously excited for number two, but. Let's get to the nitty gritty because I know you have a limited amount of time and I know that everyone tuning in is probably really interested in fertility and infertility. So can we just let the cat out of the bag and let people know how common is infertility? Infertility is... It's on the rise and I'm actually working on a new book project. So I might actually have the stats at the top of my mind. Um, but what the research is telling us is that it's like one in six couples. And I think that I looked at a stat recently because I was legitimately working on a, a section that was kind of addressing some of these things. And I, I, I believe that the number that I put in that section was 72 million, up to 72 million couples worldwide. Yeah. So it's a, big, it's a big deal. It's affecting a lot of people. And I think when you're looking at infertility, there's a couple of facets of it that I think are important. So the definition of infertility, which is not what we think of necessarily, is that if you haven't conceived within 12 months of trying. And um, so I like to make the distinction between infertility and subfertility because um, of those couples that don't conceive within that 12 months, uh, you know, up to... And legit, the stats are like right on the top of my head because mm-hmm. I was working on it. But mm-hmm. 55% then from the studies that I was looking at go on to conceive within 36 months. So what you have, like what we would think of as infertility is that you can't have a baby. Um, But statistically, there's a big difference between having a delay in how long it takes you to conceive versus actually falling into the category where it's really not happening regardless of what you try and then you really need to go on to something, some form of artificial reproductive technology. 
I mean, I think that's such a relief for everyone listening because when you see those big 72 million people worldwide, and I mean, I remember even just looking at the stats a few years ago and they were one in eight, you know, and you're looking at the the current stuff now being one in six, but it is, you know, coming from a science background and, and a healthcare background for eight years in cancer and genetics, and then going into practice on my own, it is amazing what technology can offer couples. I'm really... I'm really thankful that there are multiple, you know, ways that we can address infertility for people who are willing or open to that type of technology. Um, because we, you know, it is so common and there are so many reasons why. So that is, I love that it's not fear-mongering. I love that it's, hey, you know, if it's not in the first year, for most of you, or at least more than half of you, it's gonna be in the next couple of years, which is great mm-hmm. news. It's great. Well, and something else that is important, I think, when talking about it, of course, the way our culture looks at fertility challenges is that, oh, it's, I mean, it's the woman. Of course, like that's kind of how we look at it because we're the ones that have the evidence of of this baby. Um, We're the ones that carry, we're the ones that breastfeed, all of that kind of stuff. And so, uh, again, when you're looking at the stats, um, male factor infertility plays a role half of the time. So it's not always. Uh, exclusively male factor. So exclusively male factor, you know, 20 to 30% of the time, but 50% of the time, like, (laughs) and I think that this for a lot of women is a bit of a relief. I was talking about male fertility in one of my classes recently, and I had one of my um, students, if you will, message me. And she was kind of like, you know, I'm really thankful that you talked about that in the class because I had never really thought that there was anything that my partner could do. She's not currently actively trying. She's avoiding and planning for the future. But she was kind of like, this was really helpful because now I know that both of us can actually contribute to this chance of fertility together. And you know, even though we have this evidence, you're heavily pregnant right now, you're, you know, your partner <laughs> walks around and he's fine. Like he, no one could tell, but, um, but he is responsible for 50% of that genetic material. Um, and even if, uh, if you were to... Um, for women who've experienced loss, for example, we often think it must be me, but even the quality of your partner's sperm can contribute to the chance of miscarriage. So I feel like it's it's not about slinging blame, obviously, but it's just about understanding that this is a multifaceted issue. Just like you said, there's many factors that come into play. That's so important. Not owning like the guilt and the shame associated with miscarriage. I had a miscarriage before Sebastian. And we, we, got, we get pregnant pretty quickly, but I'm always like, is it going to stick? Yeah, but um, it was a stressful, sort of a little bit of a stressful time. We were—I was on my first book tour, and we had taken a vacation and like went for it, just like okay, let's do this, and pleasantly surprised. But obviously, like having that be my first experience getting pregnant, then I was diving into the research. How often does this happen? Why does this happen? Like, what's causing what's causing this? And I think that that's really important. I like to be open about that um, only because I think people think, oh, well, if you eat really healthy and if you like sleep and manage your stress and that like nothing bad is going to happen to you or that you're not going to experience loss or infertility or miscarriage. And I think that that is something I'd love for you to kind of dive into when it comes to causes of infertility and maybe even unexplained infertility or causes of loss. Yeah. Well, um, I had a miscarriage also before my first child. And so I was charting, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, for anyone who's charting, um, 
I, I knew that I was pregnant basically two weeks after ovulation because my temperature did not go down and I knew I was pregnant. Uh, but I miscarried very early on. So I miscarried then three weeks past ovulation, which is five weeks pregnant for anybody who doesn't know uh, because pregnancy is calculated from technically the last day of your first menstrual period. Um, but what, what I found was that um, like it, was, it was a very interesting experience because I've been tracking my cycles for, you know, a decade. And I'd never you're, you're had... into this. You're passionate <laughs> yeah. about this. Yeah, this is the thing. And so I'd never had unprotected sex during the window. And so I obviously thought that I would just get pregnant the first time. And it actually took us four cycles. We're right on average. So the average couple takes... Uh, the average couple, average healthy... You know, everything's kind of teaser crossed, eyes are dotted. Uh, it takes an average of 25... Or there's a 25% per cycle chance. So on average, it takes about four cycles for conception. Um, and so when I had my miscarriage, it was kind of like all of my friends who had had miscarriages came out of the woodwork. And I had no idea how common it was. It was kind of like I was in, entered, you know, welcome to the club. Like everyone, like I had a miscarriage. I had two. Oh, I, like, I'm just like, what? Yeah. You never told me. You never said anything. I had no idea. And so just to speak to what you were, uh, you were talking about there, miscarriage is, is very, very common. So there's a study that I pulled from. You know, They looked at over 600,000 women, Danish, Danish study. And uh, overall, there was about a 13.5% chance of miscarriage. But then when you broke that down by age, I think this is where... Uh, this is the part that we don't really know and understand. Even 13.5 is pretty high if you think about it. Because you wouldn't really think... That it's so common, like that's like one out of six, yeah, uh, pregnancies and the miscarriage across the board. But the women who were in their early twenties, it was more like nine percent, so like under ten percent. Whereas the women in their uh, mid to late thirties um, was was higher than that, kind of closer to thirty percent. Uh, but when you get into the early forties, early to mid forties, it was fifty percent, like half. And by the time we reached 45, it was 75%. So um, I delicately, when I'm talking about this with clients, because I think it is actually helpful to know this. But what it basically means is that when you're over 40, it's like you have to get pregnant twice to keep one. That might sound, I hope it doesn't sound like, you know, mean or anything. Yeah. Um, and then, be, but the reason that I say that and the reason I say that in that way is because when I'm working with women in their 40s, they have had miscarriages. Uh, when they're trying to conceive, it's it's most most women have at that point, um, and so I feel that it kind of takes away, like you said, some of that guilt and shame. Like there must be something wrong with me. My body must be broken. When you find out, whoa, this is kind of how it is at this stage, and um, it certainly speaks to some of the challenges. And I would say a big challenge when it comes to fertility is just understanding the natural course, the kind of biological course of being a woman, right? From what happens through our reproductive life. Because most of us growing up, we learn incorrectly that you can get pregnant on every single day of the menstrual cycle. <laughs> um, and not only can you, you're basically trained to think that you will. Like it's an absolute certainty if your partner looks at you. Um, and so, <laughs> so I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, but I guess my point is that when you think about it that way, I've talked to many women that are just as terrified of having an unplanned pregnancy when they're in their mid-30s as they were when they were 17. But at no point did it enter into the discussion that our fertility changes with age. And 
there can be different challenges at different ages. Um, you know, and it's not it's not about fear mongering because, of course, you can get pregnant in any cycle with ovulation. Yeah. Women do get pregnant and you know at any age, but there are challenges. And so, one of the reasons why it can be more challenging for women as we get older is because of that higher miscarriage rate, and that can be linked to some of the challenges with aging. So, increased exposure to oxidative stress, like our body's older. If you've ever seen a banana turn brown, that's oxidative stress. But it's essentially. Um, when you look at the research again, you know we're talking about changes to the microsomal or the um, chromosomal abnormalities and increased chance of that happening. Um, and it's on both sides. It's on the female side and the male side. Because although men don't have a menopause, yeah. um, you know we can't... If, if you still think the 80-year-old man's sperm is the same as a 20-year-old man, <laughs> you got to talk. Yeah. <laughs> men are also affected by aging. So um, I'll pause there and let you kind of... Because I know you asked a kind of a broader question about fertility, but I feel like that's a good segue into just this, even this topic of miscarriage and how it relates to aging. Definitely. I think you know when we, when we look at the past and I just even look at my parents, my mom got married in her early 20s, started having kids in her late 20s. You know, I look at Chris and I, we got married in our late 20s. We didn't even think about having kids until our mid 30s, you know? So it's um, to, to really understand that differentiation between age and miscarriage rate is I think really important too for planning purposes. Because if you're saying that on average, it's going to take four cycles, if everything is in your favor, <laughs> then you're talking about, you know, uh, I think what we all think is exactly what you said. The minute someone looks at us, we will get pregnant. So if we have our perfect little plan in our mid-30s that we're going to start you know, getting pregnant and we decide, okay, yeah, well, I'll get pregnant in June. So of course, I'll just try in June because on my 35th birthday or whatever it is. And to really understand that you know, it's, ta- it's going to take time and that the chances of miscarriage are there. Because even just looking, even just looking back at my experience... I had planned it out or Chris, Chris and I, you, Chris adamantly wanted a summer baby, you know, and we had like gotten pregnant to have a Memorial Day baby, you know, and it was, it was set like, it was like a May, um, a May due date for that first pregnancy. And obviously we're very excited about that. But at, once you go through something like that, it's like, oh, no, no, no. I just want to get pregnant. I'll have this baby in October. I'll have this baby on Christmas. Like 4th of July doesn't really matter to me anymore. Like I just want to have a child. So I think bringing to light how age changes our fertility and the reasons for that are are really important. You bringing up oxidative stress, I don't think people realize like how it really works. And that if you're living your life and aging, you're, you're accumulating more oxidative stress year over year. Yeah, of course. And also, I think many of us are kind of aware to some extent that as we get older, the chances of chromosomal abnormality increases. And that is part of the reason then why the miscarriage rate is higher. So, but this isn't all doom and gloom. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do to, uh, at least to the best of our ability to mitigate some of that. I mean, there's plenty of very popular supplements uh, and, and certain dietary strategies and things that you can implore to minimize some of those effects. Plenty of there's plenty of research on you know the role of antioxidants in terms of supporting egg quality. So coenzyme Q10, one of the most studied um, for both sperm and egg health, uh, is in, is really crucial for mitochondrial function. And I mean, I could list you know different ones if you want. You know, yeah. um, selenium, folate, zinc, 
vitamin C. Uh, you know, there's plenty of um, things that you can do. So it's not to say that you can't do anything. But I think the the key though is to just understand, and it's it's what you said about planning. So you, as women, I feel that there's a lot of pressure to kind of have everything together and in order. So it's not like. I don't know, 100 years ago where you would be expected... Like it wouldn't be a thing if you just got married out of high school and just had a baby when you were 19. It's just not how our culture is now. So we're expected, of course, to become well-educated, often not even just one degree, right? Several (laughs) decades of education um, bringing us into our late 20s and early 30s. And then we have to kind of find the relationship and get the job and sort it all out, get the property, the home... Yeah. Right. And so by the time, so basically what I'm saying is that our culture does not fit our biology. Because actually, the best time from a, and I'm not talking like just take out the, all the social implications for a moment, but the best time biologically to have a baby is obviously in your early 20s. Yeah. So we kind of have this in a different way. And uh, I also see a lot the role of hormonal birth control in, in all of this because when you have, like you said, the plan. Okay, so we're getting married in the fall and then we're going to start having a baby. So I'm going to come off the pill in September, right before our wedding day. Yeah. And then we're just going to get pregnant. And so, and often I've spoken to a number of women who have, they, like, they're planning this. They're, we're all doing our best here. So they go to their doctors and it's like, okay, I'm getting married in the fall. You know, should I come off the pill even like six months earlier, do you think? And, the, and often the doctor says, no, if you, get, if you get off, you'll just get pregnant right away. So you may as well wait until. And so what we are not made aware of is that even though there's no evidence to suggest that there is a long-term or permanent effect of birth control on fertility, because the evidence doesn't support that, um, there is a well-established temporary period of subfertility that is often not discussed. And so when you're like, for me, if I'm looking at different, like how, how this has been studied, uh, there are studies that will just give you like the 12 months, like, okay, after 12 months, these, this, you know, 75, 80% of women got pregnant. So there's no effect on fertility. But if you look at the studies that break it down month to month, what happens is um, if you were to be using condoms, for example, and you were just to switch it out, right? Take the condom off. Then that's where you get the average of about you know 25% chance per cycle. If you come off of hormonal birth control though, like let's take the pill, for example, an average of eight months. So double the time. And this might not seem like a big deal to the researchers because apparently it really doesn't. But for the average woman who has been preventing pregnancy actively, like the plague since yeah. she was in her late teens, like the whole her whole 20s was actively doing everything possible to prevent, like being so responsible. <laughs> Obviously, she thinks that as soon as you pull the goalie, this is going to happen because this is what we've been told. And it can. And it, it, it certainly can. And it does for some women. So of course, there's a certain percentage of women. They come off the pill. They ovulate 14 days later and then they get pregnant. Um, some miscarry, some don't, but obviously this is a thing. Um, but some women come off birth control and it takes them several months before they ovulate. And yeah. in some cases more kind of, I would say less commonly, but in some cases it can take quite a while, you know, even a year or more. Um, and so then by the time you're at month six or month seven post birth control and you've been trying, you're already freaking out. Like you're freaking out by the second time you had your period. Right. right? <laughs> right. Like the first time you're okay. Like you try and then you get your period 
And then you're like, you know, was, I get it. I was on the pill for a while, whatever. But the second month that you get your period, you're already freaking out. Um, and this is why it matters. And this is why I think these conversations are really important because the implication there is just that we need to, just like we plan for everything else, like you plan your wedding, you plan your home, you, you know, we, we plan all these things, we plan our careers. And, but if we don't have the information about how our fertility works, then we don't often have that opportunity to plan. And so my suggestion in these cases is if you're able to, do consider you know, switching to a non-hormonal method before you're ready. So when you're still avoiding, go you know, with condoms or another non-hormonal method for a period of time, just so that you can give your cycles a chance to normalize and you can kind of see what's happening. So that if there's anything wrong, if it takes a couple months longer for your you know, ovulation to return and your periods to return normally, at least you have a buffer uh, because that's a lot less stressful to be going through that and sorting out the cycles when you're not actively trying. What you're doing is giving people the solid evidence of that suboptimal fertility that could happen post birth control that maybe their doctors aren't sharing with them because they're just looking at the year-long data. Just completely. And it's different. crazy because yeah. I, I can see the perspective of because they're, they're, what they're proving with their research is that there's no, like the pill doesn't cause infertility. Right. And what is important also to note about those studies, like highly critical of all this stuff, is that like if, you, <laughs> if you, for example, had an issue with your cycle, let's say you were put on the pill because you had irregular cycles or because you had stopped getting your period, you were excluded from the study. They're not studying you because they know that the pill um, masks issues like that. And so if you didn't have your period or if you had irregular cycles and you were on the pill, the pill makes you bleed every 28 days, but it's not the same thing as an actual menstrual cycle. Um, so let me know if we want to go into that. Let's go. I would, love to, I, I would love to go into that because I think that that's going to be an aha moment for people who either didn't have their period and got on the pill and started having their period or they have had regular cycles and went on the on the pill. Can you explain how hormonal birth control affects our body and our ovulation? Um, and I love, and you can rant if you need to. I love that you put a warning box in your book, The Fifth Vital Sign. Um, I love that you call the menstrual cycle a biomarker for women's health because it absolutely is, and it's telling us something's going on with our body and it's giving us that. It's giving us that feedback. So let's get into the nitty gritty on birth control. What is it? How is it working? What is it masking? All right. Okay. So birth control, the biggest myth I would say about birth control is that it regulates the cycle or that it tricks your body into thinking that you're pregnant or something like that. Because so as as an adult female of reproductive age, your menstrual cycle is a part of the package. It's a package deal. So um, I, o- I often use the example of, you know, if I buy a car, like if I were to opt to have that car without air conditioning, which I, why would I do that? But if I did, then if I, get, if I get it without the AC, the car still works just fine because it's a machine and these parts are made separately and it doesn't matter. But as an adult female, me not having a, a normal, um, optimal menstrual cycle is the same thing as like me stopping having bowel movements. Like no one would think that's okay. And if you do, you should get that checked out. <laughs> yeah. You're but, probably very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So we need to, I think, get to a place where we start to understand. Like, I mean, that's its own conversation. I think that the history of medicine 
has excluded women in many ways. A lot of the research studies are done on men or male animals, even because the female animals have this hormonal system that's complex. It screws up their studies. So they, don't, <laughs> they don't do that. But what that means for us is that often we're looked at as men, like little men, with <laughs> weird features. Yeah. And so that's the first thing, understanding that the menstrual cycle is, a, is, a, is not is not an added feature. It's a, just a part of how our bodies work. And so when you stop menstruating, it's a sign of a problem. And a great example of that is hypothalamic amenorrhea, HA, because if you, which is characterized by overexercise, undernutrition, and stress. So legitimately, your body is starving and you're working out too much, you're not eating enough. And so you're starving. And so you lose your period because your body's highly intelligent and saying, this is not a good time to create more of you. Yeah. We need to uh, feed you first. Correct. Yeah. There's not enough energy for me to give to another being eat. And so what happens though is women who lose their periods for six, you know, months or more, they have a higher lifetime risk of osteoporosis. So I mean, losing your period or having issues with your cycle is a sign that there's something happening. So back to the pill. So when you're on hormonal birth control, the way the main way that it works is by suppressing ovulation. The majority of hormonal methods. Uh, fully or at least partially suppress ovulation. So it's like if I buy a summer cabin and it's got this like leak in the um, water, you know, line, and it's leaking everywhere. And so I cut the water line, <laughs> and then like three years later, I go up there and I turn on the water, and the leak is still there. Right? That's that's basically what it is. So when you have a cycle issue. The pill just stops the whole thing. It and it and the reason that you bleed every 28 days is because they give you artificial hormones for a period of time and then they take them away. And that causes your body to do a bit of a reset, which is what we call a withdrawal bleed. And so that isn't the same as a natural ovulation. A natural ovulation means that your ovaries are developing eggs, you're making estrogen, you ovulate, you make progesterone. And those two hormones combine to fully develop the uterine lining and then you bleed if you're not pregnant afterwards. That is a true period. So when you, for example, like what you said, like if you just didn't have your period at all or something like that and you went on the pill and then it gave you a bleed every 28 days, when you are ready then to start your family and you come off the pill, the water main is still broken because uh, unless you somehow corrected that while on the pill... The issue, the underlying issue is still there because the pill doesn't actually fix that. And conversely, the pill isn't causing your infertility either because it simply masked what was happening under kind of under the hood of the car there. And so I think that's what's really important to know because my version of feminism, speaking of rant, yes. involves <laughs> uh, not only being able to avoid pregnancy when I don't, you know, when I'm not ready to have a baby, but it also involves being able to have a baby when I'm ready. And this is the part of the conversation that the pill. Um, that we could add to the pill that we really desperately need to add to that, you know, because I can come across really anti-pill with my, um, because of how the detailed information that I've done or the detailed research that I've done about like the side effects, and I'm always on about that. Um, but it's not about saying women shouldn't use the pill. It's just about saying that we should be able to understand fully what this thing is about, how it works, what it does. And also when I want to have a baby, what I can do to get myself ready. And so again, my suggestion is simply to seriously consider if you have the runway, if you have the time to give yourself a window, just like I have car insurance for my car, I don't anticipate an accident. <laughs> but if there is one, I have the insurance. So you don't anticipate that your cycle is not going to come back 
or that you're not going to be able to get pregnant when you want. But if you give yourself, and I would say a minimum of a year if you can do it, even a year and a half, and especially if you had problems, like if you know you had problems with your cycle, if you know that you your cycle was super irregular or you had outrageous pain, like we could talk about that. But these things can indicate a potential challenge when you come off of it. So if you know that you are at a greater risk for those things, certainly consider 12, you know, day two, if you can. Yeah. If your insurance policy. No, I think a lot of people, and you know, it depends on when you meet your your spouse or your person or whatever it is. But I think for a number of women, they, you know, meet their person. They don't feel pressured to get engaged or get married. They're having fun. They're in their careers. Um, you know, I look back, Chris and I got together in 2007. We didn't get married in two, until 2012, you know, and we didn't have Sebastian until 2018. My parents were like, what the heck is happening? Are you guys okay? <laughs> but I, I think um, there are a number of women that have, have the runway and just having that information and understanding that they should they can do something about it and prepare their body and understand if they have underlying infertility issues. I mean, the pain piece is really interesting to me because it's one thing to not have your period or to have really irregular periods, one you know, period coming every three months or something or um, really long cycles or something like that. But can we dive into pain? Because I think that's something that... Um, you know, a lot of women are put on the pill because they have really bad menstrual cramps or because they have acne. Um, but pain is an interesting one because it's linked to an issue getting pregnant. And I'd love for you to get into that. Yeah. I mean, pain with menstruation is really, really common. But I think common to the point that a lot of women just assume that it's normal and that it's part of being a woman and that this is just our lot in life, right? Like um, often what I find with my clients is that I have to kind of like, I have to make sure to ask. I have to make sure it's on my intake form and I have to make them tell me, you know, how, how bad is it? Because often they're so used to having it and they, you know, they deal with it and we deal with it. So it, you're not even coming to me for that. You're not like, I have other problems. Like, teach me about the birth control, like the, the pain, whatever. And so I feel like at least if you can hear someone at some point in your life say, yeah, it's common. And yeah, a lot of women experience pain, but it's not what we would consider normal or optimal. And outside of childbirth, there's no situation where having moderate to severe pain that could leave you on the floor unable to move would, would be considered all right. And if you imagine, you know, any of your favorite men, your you know, <laughs> partner, brother, cousin, <laughs> uh, father, uh, you know, with severe pain in his penis, right? They would have figured it out. <laughs> yeah. How is so? I feel like sometimes you put it to that kind of person because why would anyone think that's okay? But this is, you know, the low standard that we've been. Um, awarded to assume that this is, you know, this is acceptable. Uh, but I do recognize that it's a significant challenge. So I'm not here to say, you know, don't manage it in whatever way you manage it. I think we all do the best that we can with what we know at the time. And if you have really significant pain, I wouldn't suggest just to like stop taking the pill, um, you know, without doing any type of work and learning and knowledge about what could be at, at the root of it. So I think it's really helpful to know that there is a difference between women who have severe pain and women who don't. And so when you look at the research, women who tend to have moderate to severe pain have upwards of four times the levels of prostaglandins, which is a, a marker of infl um, inflammation. Prostaglandins are a group of lipids that cause smooth muscle contractions. And so we need them when we have our period so that we release the, um, the uterine lining. So it's a part of it. But when 
you have significant pain. It's out of control, basically. Like you have way too much. And obviously, you can feel that the cramps are just not like it's just outside normal. But I feel like even that one piece of information to know that there's like a legitimate blood marker that is different in you if you have severe pain makes it real, especially if you've ever had that minimized. And so that means, okay, we have, we have a beacon of light. It's associated with increased inflammation. So that means we can actually look to what can we do to reduce inflammation from you know reducing our consumption of um, processed sugary crap <laughs> um, to uh, you know looking at the oils that we're cooking with and looking at dairy. Um, I'm not anti-dairy, but conventional dairy when the cows are eating the genetically modified corn and soy, that leads to more inflammatory meat, milk, and all of those products. So (laughs) So even just being aware of that for a lot of women, they'll experience some relief from switching up some of those dietary things. Some women then become aware of all of the chemicals and crap in all of our products. And so if you're using regular bleached tampons... They always, you know, don't put anything in your vagina that you wouldn't put in your mouth. So um, some women actually experience some relief when they switch to organic products or reusable products like menstrual cups or things like that, reduce their, all the beauty products, right? Like they all, everything with a smell, the plugins, all that stuff. So, you know, for many women, this is a bit of a journey. And then on the flip side, you know, what can we do to kind of reduce inflammation again, like supplement wise? And so zinc and magnesium, fish oil, a lot of women, turmeric, a lot of women experience a great deal of relief with a combined approach. So that's not necessarily going to be enough for everybody, but it can be very significant. And so, you know, my suggestion for someone who was put on the pill specifically because of that pain, I would say, again, the, the, the pill helps us to manage. So for many women, the pill and the painkillers that gets us through the day. But when it comes to wanting to live your life and wanting to get pregnant at some point, you have to have a, another solution that can potentially at least get at that root cause. And so um, potentially working with a functional practitioner for a couple of months while you're still on the pill to address some of these issues to help with that transition you know, so that it's not necessarily as bad when you decide to come off of it. Um, and again, doing this well in advance of when you want to try to have a baby and also looking into abdominal therapy modalities. So like our Vigo Mercier therapy, like deep tissue abdominal therapy that can help Remove, you know, reduce the pain. And if you have something like endometriosis, like these are kind of the things you can do before surgery. Like these are the things you can do that don't involve getting um, a laparoscopic procedure done that can really help. And so just, yeah, so that would, that would be what I would say. And then again, this is part of your insurance policy. Everyone doesn't need to do that. But if you have that severe pain, it's helpful to know that the only option isn't come off the pill and like hope that it's not horrific. Right. Right. Absolutely. I love that. I love that you're empowering people to understand how to decrease inflammation and that, that there are blood markers like increased prostaglandins that are a marker to show us, hey, this is not in your head. This is real. You don't have to deal with this debilitating pain. Um, you dropped so many nuggets of knowledge there that I kind of want to unpack some of those. And part of, partly it overlapped with some of the oxidative stress stuff. So oxidative stress obviously creates inflammation in our body as well. And chromosomal is linked to chromosomal abnormalities. So we want to decrease oxidative stress. We want to decrease inflammation. And there are a number of supplements that we can all be taking probably out. I mean, I'm sure you would recommend something specific, but at least like a year to a year and a half, if you have the runway, like get off the bill, start taking these supplements, start cleaning these chemicals and um, hormones 
uh, exogenous hormones out of your life as much as you can. So what are some of your favorite supplements and should our male counterparts be taking them as well? Well, that's a really great, great question. And I would say, I mean, a lot of us are really deficient in magnesium. So I would say that, you know, generally speaking, that can be really helpful. Um, when I think about that runway and that preconception stage, I always think about it in terms of a combination of incorporating certain things from a dietary perspective as well as uh, those key supplements. Because I know that everybody is a bit different. And I have a lot of clients who are just like, I just take so much stuff. You know, so you know, how can I balance this out? And so the approach that I take, I'm not one to recommend a specific diet, like to be very rigid about it. I take an ancestral ancestral approach to nutrition because I've always been a curious type. And I wonder, you know, what did those people do before Whole Foods, right? Like, what did my grandma do? <laughs> what did my great grandma do? And so um, certainly I, I talk a lot with my clients. If any of my clients are listening, they're going to be laughing about liver and organ meats, you know, bone broth, soup stews, of course, uh, Whole Foods. Um, and it's helpful to start to understand what nutrients that you need for optimal fertility, hormone health, as well as, um, as well as optimal, you know, baby development. So, as much as the conversation is about like what can I do to get pregnant, all of us want the healthiest children. Um, we want to have the healthiest pregnancies. And as a mom, once baby arrives. <laughs> Even if you were at your healthiest, most nutrient-replete state, you're going to be exhausted. So yeah. it's not a good idea to go into pregnancy super depleted because I always use kind of the bank account analogy. You know, you're never going to go through nine months of pregnancy and then a few months to a couple of years of breastfeeding and come out like more nutrient replete <laughs> than you did coming in. Like this is a, a season of your life where it's it's withdrawals, ladies. Yeah, and as much like the world, and of course me as well, is really really concerned about baby, but I'm concerned about mom because it's hard enough to be a new mom when you're good, like when you're pretty healthy. So those, you know, there's many key nutrients of concern, and I probably won't list them all, but you really want to look at certain things. Iron is really important. You know, vitamin A is really important. B vitamins are really important. Folate, uh, B12, all the Bs. Um, choline is really important. Iodine is really important. Um, and so, and zinc is really important. I mean, vitamin D is really important. We could just go on and on and on and on. Um, omega 3 fatty acids are really important. So, um, I would say a combination, if you're open to it, consider incorporating organ meats. <laughs> I know it's not everyone's favorite, but I don't, I'm not just a weirdo for the liver. Like when you actually break it down, liver is the highest natural. It's source. the multivitamin. Exactly. That is and what meat. they did before it's, Whole Foods. Yeah, it's the multivitamin. <laughs> yeah. Well, and everyone's taking, everyone's taking air quotes, but a lot of people are looking at coenzyme Q10, right? For the sperm and the egg health. It's a very yeah. popular supplement for good reason. There's a lot of research behind it. Where did they get that? Before Whole Foods, while well, it's highest in you know liver and heart meat, right? Yeah. So, and if you don't want to eat it, there's plenty of ways to take it, right? Desiccated liver, yeah. liver powder, whatever. But that's just an example. Fish eating fish with this, you know, eating sardines with the bone in. If you're open to that, eating shellfish and things like that. And then, um, from my perspective, then the supplementation is part of it. But you can't really expect to get all of it from food. And for those who don't eat any meat, then there's ways to kind of sort that out. And you might have to rely more heavily on supplementation for certain nutrients that you can't 
get without the meat. So it's a, it's a complex conversation there. You know, there are a few experts that I love in the fertility and pregnancy space, but um, there's very little talked about when it comes to nutrition, um, like prior to getting pregnant, in when you're when you're actively trying, when you're pregnant, what your baby needs, what you're going to see yourself, you know, what's going to be depleted at the end of pregnancy, how to test if you're depleted. I, I love the lactation lab, and I had. Dr. Um, Canali on the show. She like started the lactation lab at UCLA just to understand like, wow, my breast, if I'm not, if I'm low in vitamin D and choline and iodine and iron and DHA and my breast milk is that way, then my baby's brain, and if that's their only nutrition, is deficient in that and not and not growing cognitively the way I want it to. And it's just, it's empowering to know, but What's what came out of the research and what continues to come out of the research is that the most nutrient dense way to get all of these B vitamins, to get all these fat soluble vitamins, to get all of like the minerals you're talking about is through animal protein. And if you're not eating animal protein, you should absolutely be optimizing your nutrition with supplementation. Um, so I'm so glad that you brought that up because as like I have like a, a full video and like 40 page downloadable PDF for that one exact video because I think it's just over people's head and they don't feel so great in the first trimester and they're just having like their crackers or whatever. And and I get it. I was there with this pregnancy, but it's so, it's so, so, so important. Um, one thing I'll just jump in and say, because a lot of... So I was fortunate when I was pregnant both times. I, I'm the one you hate. Like I didn't have... I had a little bit of nausea, like, you know, I'm that girl. Yeah. Um, but most women aren't that girl. And so, you know, I, on the opposite end, one of my best friends, like legitimately like projectile vomited for five months and she needed, I think it's called diclectin. Yeah. So, um, so I guess what I'm saying is that when you have that runway and you're able to learn, you know, dive, really dive into specific nutrition for fertility, as well as, again, you know, adding supplementation to fill in the gaps. Um, because there are certain nutrients you can't actually get from food, like vitamin D. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when you do that and you really prepare during that runway, and ideally, of course, you know, six to 12 months, if you have, again, the time and the ability to do that, then if you do find yourself real you know, sick during that first trimester and you can't really keep anything down but the crackers because they're salty and it's the only thing that isn't making you want to throw up, then you don't have to feel any kind of ways about it because you know that you did the best you can. I mean, and there's no perfect here. We all do the best that we can. If you're in that situation right now, you're listening the first trimester, you're like, I didn't do this. You'll yeah. have trimesters two and three when it settles down. It is yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a long time to be pregnant and like adding postpartum, we're talking about a year of your life. So not, let's not stress out. Let's, you can always get back on the horse. You can always start to focus on nutrient density. Um, so... So when it comes to antioxidants, outside of like the fat-soluble vitamins, the water-soluble vitamins, the minerals, um, and like the fatty acids that you mentioned, um, CoQ10, curcumin, or what maybe people are taking turmeric, they haven't heard of curcumin, turmeric, curcumin, um, things like that. What would you say if you had like a little mini hit list of what the male should be taking to increase sperm quality? What should we have our... Our, our guys on? So vitamin A is at the top of my list. And that's not necessarily one that I hear everyone going on about. But um, And when you are not the one who's getting pregnant, you could 
potentially supplement with that as well if you're not willing to eat the liver or take the cod liver oil or, or whatever the case is. So vitamin A tops the list um, because it's really crucial for sperm development. It's, it's part of the process of sperm development to the point that there's actually research about enzymes that inhibit vitamin A um, production and absorption as a possible uh, contraceptive for men. It's a, it's interesting. Um, so when I describe this to my clients, you know, there are animal studies, and I understand that we're not like rats and like rabbits and stuff, but there are animal studies where if you feed the animals a vitamin A deficient diet, the male animals stop making testosterone and they stop making sperm. And the female animals, they call it fetal reabsorption in the animals, but the female animals basically can't get pregnant. And if they get pregnant, they have miscarriages. So vitamin A is really crucial. And that's something that I think like, get that in. Take eat the liver, take the cod liver all, you know, whatever, get it in. Um, so in addition to that, it's, it's, it's basically a mirror image of what the women need to take. Because I always think back to, you know, in utero, there's a, there's a place where we're not differentiated, where the men, the boys and the girls look the same. We're made out of the same stuff, legitimately, our parts and his, like, right? Yeah. So it, it makes sense then that it's not so different. So right. what's crucial for male fertility then, you know, in addition to vitamin A, um, certainly vitamin D is important. Coenzyme Q10, as you mentioned, folate, zinc, um, L-cartamine, uh, Antioxidants in general, so vitamin C, um, certainly has been shown to reduce sperm DNA damage. And so this is so that you kind of understand what's what's happening. I mean, the parameters for um, the parameters, kind of the, the air quotes normal parameters that are outlined by the World Health Organization. Um, you know, they're looking at morphology, which is how the sperm looks. They're looking at motility, and so the coenzyme Q10 is crucial again to support the mitochondria, so they have normal movement. And these antioxidants that we're talking about then are intended to minimize that oxidative stress and the uh, sperm DNA damage. And so, I mean, there is a relationship then between how they look. So when I say morphology, too, I show my clients pictures because. Pictures worth a thousand words. Yeah. But when you think about what a sperm looks like, we all have an image of like a circular head and a tail. But when the, the sperm is abnormal, it might not have a head, might not have a tail, it might have a malformed head, it might have two heads. So that is not capable <laughs> of fertilizing an egg. And so when the sperm is also kind of off, there may be a higher chance that it's going to also have this issue with DNA damage. And so the, when the sperm is damaged in that way, it can mean that it could be like that particular sperm wouldn't be chosen or in general. Um, so yeah, there's a whole other tangent I could go into, but I won't. But let's say that, um, you know, the healthiest man alive, the majority of even his sperm is abnormal. Um, yeah. And so what the World Health Organization says is, is optimal or not optimal, what the World Health Organization says is acceptable is um, 4% morphology, um, a sperm concentration of 15 million sperm per milliliter, and I believe a 40% motility. And so what that means is out of every 100 sperm, four of them look normal and 96 of them look squashed and (laughs) stuff. And then from a scientific perspective, when you look at at what point does the additional healthy sperm not increase the per cycle chance? So... Like for example, if you had 400 million, does it make that big of a difference if it's 500 million? So that kind of zero point is about 15% morphology. So 15 out of every 100 is normal and 85 are squashed, kind of weird looking. Um, 60%, 68% motility, 
um, and about 50 million sperm per milliliter. So I know I'm giving a lot of specific numbers. But my point is that even the healthiest man alive, the majority of his sperm are abnormal. And so, I mean, we could get into the weeds with fertility awareness goodies. But um, one of the reasons that I think charting your cycle and understanding that aspect is so interesting is because when you're in your fertile window, that's when you're making cervical fluid, like kind of clear, stretchy stuff, or it kind of looks like white, creamy white hand lotion. And one of the fascinating aspects about it is that it screens abnormal sperm. So our bodies, when we're fertile, are actively screening out the sperm that can't swim properly and the sperm that's kind of squashed, weird looking. Um, so only the healthy ones get through. And so, I mean, there's it, this is all very interesting, right? So there's a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts here. So there's a lot we can do to improve certainly his sperm by making sure he's getting his nutrients in, making sure he's doing his part. And again, there's this is more argument for taking that runway because to see the results of what you're doing, it takes a minimum of about four months. So if your partner were to ejaculate today, he's basically giving you a printout of his health about four months ago because that's how long it takes to make the sperm. And similarly with our egg quality, it takes... So you know, on the general end, you know, you want about three to four months. But that egg that you ovulated this month started really in, in its final trajectory seven to eight months ago. I love it. This is great. This is great information. And I and I think really eye-opening for people to even understand um, what quality looks like in the quote unquote perfect man and to understand our role in it. I mean, it's uh, you mentioned charting a couple of times. I'd love for you to go through how and what charting is and um, to talk a little bit more about cervical cervical fluid and how that supports fertility. Yeah, for sure. So um, cycle charting is kind of my main shtick. So uh, basically what it means is that you're learning to understand what's happening in your cycle. So it's always helpful to start. Like we talked about the myth that you're fertile every single day. So you're not. There's <laughs> from a scientific perspective... Six days of the cycle where pregnancy is possible. So it's completely the opposite of what most of us were taught when we were growing up. So if I were to take you through the menstrual cycle, you have your period. And so your cycle starts like the first day of your period, the first day of your true flow. So many women may have a couple days of spotting or something like that before, but when you actually need, you know, the pad, the tampon, you know, you do something about it. And so once your period comes to an end, you'll, you know, you're in your pre-ovulatory phase, it's, it's called. So your body's gradually approaching ovulation. As that happens, your body's making estrogen as those follicles are growing. And that is what causes you to make the cervical fluid. So you know, many women may have noticed this. And I know I, I can remember when I was a teenager, I, I started to see it. But I didn't know what it was. And, and my mom you know, didn't know what it was either. But I remember going to her and being like, What's like I, my underwear is like wet. I don't know. And she was like, just wear panty liners. And that was the conversation. But if you've ever had that where there's a certain time of the cycle where you're kind of wet, or you go to the bathroom and you wipe and it's like slips your... I always joke that like your hand hits the back of the toilet seat. <laughs> um, <laughs> you look, you know, and you look at it, it's like clear and stretchy, kind of poopy. So that is normal and it's healthy. And it's just uh, understanding cervical fluid is the key to understanding fertility. When you're trying to get pregnant, you know, regardless of what, you know, when that ovulation predictor kit turns positive, when you see the cervical fluid is when you have the sex. So your body naturally produces cervical fluid as you approach ovulation. And then once you ovulate, 
your ovaries are making a ton of progesterone and the progesterone actually shuts down that cervical fluid production for the rest of the cycle. And for those of you who may be aware and familiar with fertility awareness cycle charting, the three main signs that you pay attention to are your cervical fluid, your basal body temperature, and then the optional cervical position. And so after ovulation, when your progesterone goes up, progesterone causes your core body temperature to rise, which is really interesting because if you're kind of like a nerd like I am, it means you can track this and actually confirm when in your cycle ovulation happened, um, which is very helpful when you're trying to conceive because then you can get really close to that due date, right? Like the accurate (laughs) uh, due date. Um, You also know exactly when in your cycle to have sex to get pregnant because I think a lot of women discover this like not the way that they were hoping, but you know, you've been on the pill for so long, you finally start trying to get pregnant. It doesn't happen the first cycle or the first couple of cycles. And all of a sudden you stumble on all of this knowledge that there's actually like a point in the cycle where you can get pregnant and points that you can't. Um, so, so that's basically the lowdown. And so what's interesting is that, you know, the female body, I always say mother nature's, you know, much smarter than we are. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it that there's only a short time in your cycle where pregnancy is possible because your uterus is an internal organ. And so it wouldn't just be open for potential viruses or you know all the time. It's really only open during that time when something should be in there. Like it's really only open when the sperm should actually be in there. And outside of that time, the cervix is actually closed and blocked. And your vagina is quite acidic and that acidity helps to protect you from viruses and all that kind of stuff. And so um, when you are in the fertile window, the cervical fluid, it's like a home away from home for the sperm. It's a similar pH to his seminal fluid. It's alkaline, wonderful, welcoming. Um, Your cervix is the base of your uterus and it has these little folds. And it's like a video game, like when I describe this to people, because your cervical fluid rapidly draws the sperm into the cervical crypts. It's like, it's like a hotel in there. And they can hang out for up to five days. Um, and then right before ovulation, you know, the sperm that are still in those crypts are kind of pushed into the uterus. So this, there's a whole kind of conspiracy going on <laughs> in your uterus um, to help this whole process of natural conception. And cervical fluid plays a really key role. So the takeaway is when you see the cervical fluid, when you see the clear stretchy stuff, when you're trying to get pregnant, have sex. If you're not trying to get pregnant, put a condom on or something. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So let's talk about how when someone sees cervical fluid on average, how long after that does ovulation take place? Um, that's a great question. So I mean, in a typical healthy, normal cycle you would expect to see cervical fluid anywhere from about two to seven days as you approach ovulation. And so because this is all related to hormones, um, there's, some, there's, there's something that we refer to in the fertility awareness world as your peak day. And so that is not the day that you have the most cervical fluid. That is the last day. So if you're tracking your cycle, you wouldn't know. So if you, if you had cervical fluid, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you wouldn't know on Friday that it's the last day. <laughs> but on Saturday, if you no longer see your cervical fluid, then you can look back and say, okay, that was the last day. And so, you know, in the fertility awareness world, we care about the peak day or the last day that you see that cervical fluid because ovulation is highly correlated with peak day. So it doesn't always happen on peak day, but up to 80% of the time it's happening either on peak day, you know, plus or minus one. 
So what I always say is that you know the best way to confirm ovulation would be daily ultrasound. But I don't know anybody who has an ultrasound <laughs> machine in their house. Yeah. So the second best way <laughs> uh, to do this is through this these fertility awareness uh, charting techniques. So by looking at the cervical fluid, identifying that last day, um, you know that most of the time, if the cycle's healthy and normal, it's going to be around then. And if you add the daily temperature taking, so that just means you know you take your temperature first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. There's lots of wearable devices now and make it easier. Um, when your temperature actually rises, that is telling you, again, in retrospect, that you likely ovulated the day before. So you're looking for what we call a sustained thermal shift, meaning that the temperature goes up and stays high. So you'll have like a group of temperatures before ovulation that are a bit lower, but they they don't they fluctuate, but they're kind of lower. And you should be able to basically draw a line in between the lower and the higher. So when they rise, they just stay high for the rest of the cycle. And so once you have those three temperatures in a row that are higher than the previous six is um, what I teach my clients, uh, that also helps you to confirm. So you can put those two markers together and be fairly certain that ovulation happened. Like you can usually get it. I would say it's within a day. I would say this way is um, when you're doing it correctly, when you kind of are comfortable with all of these little details, it's within about a day, which is pretty good. And you don't have to buy an ultrasound machine. I've been doing this for like 20 years. And so when I started, it was printing out Excel spreadsheets and stuff. So I would say that you don't need a fancy thermometer to chart. You can get away with a $20 one. Usually it's nice to have one that has a backlight if you want or that has memory maybe so that if it's if you're fumbling around, you can put it on later on. It'll remember. Uh, so you can start with something like that. Certainly, if you really love tech. I know some of my clients have said like, you know, when I bought the $100 thermometer that syncs with my phone, my partner was like, wow, she's serious. So, <laughs> so certainly, you know, there's an argument to be made for buying all the expensive gadgets. But <laughs> if you're just getting started, just, you know, legitimately just get a, you know, $20 thermometer, get a few features that you want, but you don't have to go overboard. I love it. I love keeping it simple. I'm a total minimalist. So this is no more... I don't need any more chargers in my house for any, anything else. So I love that. And on average, um, what you, we obviously have that, that lower temperature and then a rise. Would you give us a ballpark of like the temperatures you would see on the low end and the high end? Well, so there's a pretty big range. Uh, so I'll, I'll first start by what would be what I would consider to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're looking at the temperatures before ovulation, um, you want hopefully for those temperatures to be uh, about 97.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, like 36.3 um, or 4 degrees Celsius, depending on where you live. Um, so when you're looking at that chart, ideally, the temperatures aren't really dropping lower than that. Um, and the post-ovulatory temperatures are always going to be relative to the pre-ovulatory temperatures. So in that example, the post-ovulatory temperatures likely will be you know, 97.9 and higher. At least one or two temperatures should be higher than the 98 mark. Um, and then centigrade similar in that kind of 37 range. Got it. Yeah. And a lot of women, when they start charting... <laughs> Uh, a pretty decent percentage will find that their temperatures are not, are lower than that. And so the temperatures are measuring your uh, metabolic rate. So your baseline metabolism. And so, I mean, there are plenty of functional practitioners, including traditional Chinese medicine practitioners who have their clients take their temperature to measure their metabolism. And so if it's really low, you just want to understand that it's not supposed to be really low. And there's reasons for that. It's not always only thyroid. I know that 
a lot of women will assume it must be thyroid, but it can be related to, are you eating enough food? If you skip meals all the time, your body has to compensate somehow and often it makes you cold (laughs) to reserve uh, energy. So sometimes it's basic stuff like that. Like, are you eating enough food, getting enough sleep? Are you... um, you know, all that kind of stuff. It can be related to nutrient deficiencies from zinc to iodine to iron. Um, and it can also, of course, be related to, to thyroid issues as well. Well, touching on thyroid issues, that's a major cause of, of miscarriage and, and um, something that we want to rule out to make sure that we're fertile. Are there any other um, big causes of infertility that our audience should be aware of? Yeah, I mean... We touched on a few. We talked a bit about period pain. And I think what I can say to that as well is that when women have really severe pain that isn't really helped by pain medication, that may not even be helped by birth control, that happens throughout the cycle and with sex. And so it's not just during your period. Um, That can be a sign of endometriosis. So women that have severe pain obviously have endometriosis at a higher rate. But all women with endometriosis do not have pain. And so um, that's something to be aware of because there are cases of unexplained unexplained infertility that are related to endometriosis. And so um, from the most simplest perspective, endometriosis is characterized by endometrial tissue that is growing outside of the uterus and causing then issues, scar tissue. Obviously, there's a lot of inflammation and some degree of immune system dysregulation. So there's a lot going on there. And that's something to be aware of because uh, like I said, some women don't have any pain and their symptom of endometriosis is unexplained infertility. Um, so that's something to be aware of. Polycystic ovary syndrome is, is talked about a lot with, re- with regards to infertility. But I think that's... It's interesting because there's a lot going on there. But polycystic ovary uh, ovarian syndrome is characterized by long irregular cycles as well as um, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, and inflammation. So we have this theme of inflammation going through. And one of the challenges with PCOS is that when a woman has uncontrolled PCOS, so it's she has not gotten on top of the blood sugar regulation and the insulin resistance and things like that, her cycles can be very long. So all, over 35 days, maybe 40, 50 days, sometimes 60 days, sometimes going, you know, having fewer than eight or nine periods a year. And so when that happens, you have fewer chances. And if you're not charting and you don't understand your cycles, then it can be really hard. Like if you go 60 days between uh, periods and there's only six days <laughs> from a scientific standpoint where pregnancy is possible, uh, what are the chances that you're going to randomly hit that if you don't know uh, what to look for? So um, I would say that it's not certainly impossible for women with PCOS to get pregnant. That might be a myth, but it's certainly challenging. And overall, it's going to be um, easier for pregnancy to happen and for everything to kind of fall into line when your body is, when it's controlled, like when you have the insulin sensitivity sorted out, when you have the glucose intolerance, like when you kind of sort that out, your cycles are normal because this is the whole purpose of the concept of the, the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So when the cycles are completely off, that is a sign that there's something underlying. When you correct that underlying factor, the cycles go back into line. I love that. Um, and I would say just there's a lot of things I think that are helpful when you're doing an analysis. So if you're trying to conceive and it's not happening, 
Um, and I would say it's helpful to look like to get that nutrient analysis done to make sure that you're good there. You know, what what are your levels like? So vitamin D is crucial. Women who are deficient in D are certainly um, more likely to experience a prolonged period of fertility challenges. Iodine is huge. Now, even my stance on iodine may differ from uh, basically <laughs> most most of the stances I've kind of heard uh, out there. Because I think that it's important to test a person for iodine, similar to how we would test for vitamin D, um, even if that person has a thyroid issue. Because certainly there's an argument that I hear quite a bit that if, if a person has a thyroid issue, iodine is the worst thing you should take. But if I have a thyroid issue and I'm deficient in iodine and iodine deficiency contributes to uh, an increased chance of infertility and complications, then I should be like, we can't make assumptions. So just like I can't tell anybody, you need to take exactly this much vitamin D. I mean, I can make a suggestion, but unless we actually test your vitamin D levels, we can't actually tell you how much vitamin D you need. And ideally, we would test the vitamin D, get you on the supplement, test you again, and see like if what we're doing is working. So that's yeah. my stance on iodine. And we could say that about a number of different nutrients, but I would say... Um, at least if you kind of get analyzed in that respect and you can address some of those underlying issues like PCOS, for example, women are often deficient in vitamin D and magnesium as well. Um, it's not uncommon for women with thyroid issues to be deficient in you know, iodine and zinc and iron, and things like that. So I think it's time that we start looking at, uh, at women more holistically. And also because it's not just about getting pregnant, the mom has to parent these children afterwards. Yeah. Most women have waited so long to get pregnant Right? We wanted everything to work out finally. I met the guy, I have the job, everything is good. So then you don't just want to have one, you often want to have a couple in a very short period of time. Yeah. And then the second time around, if you're not really aware of your nutrient deficiencies, you feel it on the back end. And I think the majority of my clients, and it's something I experience personally, is when you're going back to back, having babies back to back, and you're not super diligent about supplementation. And even if you are doing a great job with your food, but you're not getting checked appropriately, and you just go from being pregnant to breastfeeding, to <laughs> I weaned Sebastian and peed on a stick the next day and was pregnant and was like, well, here we go again. <laughs> so, you know, um, my first pregnancy, I was like you. I felt amazing. I could eat my salads, drink my smoothies. I had so much energy. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And all the hormones, I was like, this is the best drug ever. <laughs> like, I actually felt amazing. This time around, I know I was, I, I know I wasn't as diligent as I should have been when I was breastfeeding. The prenatals that I take are, you know, it's a lot of pills. You know, it can be a lot for people. And when you have a toddler and when you're sleep deprived and all that, and then you get pregnant again, um, even even when we're trying our best, sometimes it's like that reminder that you're going back to back. Really paying paying attention to those nutrient levels is not only going to increase the egg quality of your second child; it's going to increase how you feel throughout your second pregnancy, your ability to get pregnant again. All of those wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, again, like it's what on the other side, you, you want your children to be as healthy as you can. You just want to do the best you can. I mean, it's becoming a mom has been just this incredible ride for me personally. And certainly, there's a lot that you learn, a lot that you um, know. And so, I suppose one of the things that I certainly wish I had known <laughs> uh, before my first pregnancy was 
the much of the information I shared with you today about nutrition and things like that because my husband and I would have been great to do all kinds of stuff, but we didn't really know like most people. So um, I had an interesting experience with my youngest. He had um, a couple kind of strange developmental things at the very beginning. And um, I did not experience those things with my second child. And so I can't speak to exactly why. It's not scientific um, assessment. But as a mom, I just feel that, um, again, after, after you become a mom, people joke like, oh, you'll never sleep again and all that kind of stuff. But certainly those first few years when you have a, an infant that is entirely dependent on you for everything. And when you're in those early stages, if you're able to breastfeed and you're breastfeeding and you see that this tiny little baby is gaining double its weight and it didn't need anything, it's just you. Uh, it really kind of brings it full circle that this is more than just about like this is about fostering healthy children. Absolutely, and, and healthy moms and healthy moms. Yeah, I mean, we it really it's amazing how fast the brain grows developmentally in the first three years of life, and to know that it has so much to do with the nutrients that they're that they have access to through the food that they're being given, whether that's formula or breast milk or, you know, when they start eating solid foods and all of those things. Um, it's just, we do have a lot of power over, over this very finite amount of years that can be just such a benefit to them their whole entire life. So, um, yeah, it's it's not a reason to feel guilty as a mom. Obviously, like we have enough mom guilt friends, um, but it is no. I always just say, no better, do better. Yeah, can't well, feel bad I mean, about stuff we don't know. It's true, and I feel like in a way it's selfish because it's like I want to also be well, right? Yeah. Like I feel like there's this it's almost this like fatalist. Like I remember, so I, I distinctly remember my doctor telling me. Oh, the baby will always get what it needs. And this is the culture that we have. The baby will always get what it needs. But no one's asking if the mom is going to get what it needs. So I feel like instead of feeling guilty, just be selfish and make sure that you do this. Like, I get it. Do it for your baby too, but do it for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. We had a a limited amount of resources after Sebastian was born. And I I opted for meal delivery over a night nurse. And I did that because I had this... There's this company that delivered to my clients named Cushy in LA and they deliver all over Southern California, but it's like pasture-raised proteins, red meats, like salmon, like shellfish, like shrimp, like all the veggies, lots of really healthy fats, avocado, olive oils, like curries, all that stuff. And it wasn't every day, but a couple of days a week, I just have them drop off a couple of meals. My husband was like, we need the sleep. I was like, babe, I need the food. <laughs> like, this is my job. This is this to me is self care. Like I can handle the sleep deprivation, and we can tag team this baby. And, but like for us to feel our best, like we, it's all about nourishing ourselves. So, um, and in sorting out your priorities as a mom and what you need is is obviously for our listeners is like so important for you personally. Definitely. Know who you are and 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 get the support that you need if you if you can. But but that was my choice, you know. Just yeah. priorities are in a different place. So. Well, and that's a really important example because when you so I experienced this. I'd be curious if you experienced this or if like most moms experience this. But you kind of go out the window because you know 
the so fortunately, um, you know, my husband was around, especially the first month after, and he would feed me. Yeah, because if you've never had a baby before, I remember <laughs> I had a friend, uh, uh, one of my friends. She was, uh, I was, you know, I think I don't know somewhere in that first mom haze, uh, you know, first couple months, and I made a comment like, "Man, I can barely find time to take a shower," and she was like. Pfft. You always have time to take a shower. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, you just wait. Yeah. But, um, but it's easy to forget about yourself because there is so much going on. And when you have an infant, especially, I mean, it depends on what you're, what you're, you know, what's going on in your life. Like, do you have 16 sisters that can all come over and take turns holding the baby? Um, do you have a wonderful relationship with your parents and your in-laws that they're always in your house and very helpful and not unhelpful <laughs> and not a, a not a guest that you're hosting as a new mom <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah so I mean if you've got certain things in place but for a lot of moms um, I mean particularly in, in this current time when things are a little bit less certain and it might be a little bit more difficult to find individuals who are comfortable being in your house and helping you um, it can be really hard and so what you said about the food because yeah like it's you got to take care of you you have to put on your what do they say? Oxygen like, mask. You yeah, your oxygen mask first, yeah. and legit. Like I, you're you're feeding the baby is drinking out of you, definitely, literally sucking mm-hmm. the nutrients out of your body. So you need to put you need to get that in there, <laughs> definitely, can, right? Yeah, I love it so much. Well, I feel like you've been just a like I said in the beginning, just like a beacon of light and an educator. And if anything, if people are listening and, they've, and they haven't, um, they're not planning to get pregnant, thinking about getting off hormonal protection methods and using physical protection methods, charting their cycle, getting to know themselves, getting serious about either taking a high quality prenatal that has choline and DHA and all of all of the B vitamins in the proper form. She mentioned folate, not folic acid friends. Um, things like things like that and really starting to understand what was your period like before you got before you went on the pill um, and making sure that it's it's not gonna take you eight months after you get off birth control and that you'll be the average and you'll hopefully get pregnant in those first four. It's just a lot of really informative information that I think people can start, especially us as women, like we love to be planners. So we can get out there and plan appropriately with more information. Um, gosh, it's just been, it's been so, so fun. And, um, and I want people to follow along with you the way that I do. And I want them to continue to learn from you. Um, so I can't thank you enough for sharing your personal story and for sharing some of your knowledge. I know that there are women out there who are probably trying to get pregnant and this is going to change their life. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has been obviously great. We could have talked all day because there's so much to talk about. And I could tell we're both super passionate about this uh, because it really does... When people say it's life-changing, it's easy to kind of be like, eh, but, it, but it is. It, it really changes the quality of your life. So whether it's reducing your pain in, with periods. I've never met a woman who would, wouldn't love to go from her 8 out of 10 to like 4, like even if that's what you get out of the first couple of months. Um, so whether it's that or whether it's really getting to the root of what's happening with your cycles, just having that deeper understanding and having that knowledge that it, this could be a sign of something else to be that first part in your path to healing and optimal health. I mean, it, it really is life-changing. So thank you for having me.
<laughs> my pleasure. Oh my gosh. We'll definitely have you back. But where can people follow along now if they're interested in more um, fertility information? I mean, you have your Instagram and your podcast and your book and your blog. So give us give us all the nitty gritty. Sure. Well, thank you for that. Uh, so on Instagram, I'm at Fertility Friday and I share a lot of interesting inflammatory, sometimes ranty things over there. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And I've had the Fertility Friday podcast now. I'm in my sixth year, which is kind of hard to believe. So over 300 episodes. And I've almost hit 3 million downloads. Uh, as I, I haven't hit it yet, but I checked the, the thing the other day and I was like, wow, this is cool. That's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so lots, lots. If, if this conversation interests, interested you in terms of the charting and you know even the birth control stuff and understanding your cycle and the conception stuff, you'll love the podcast. You can just search Fertility Friday on your favorite podcast player. And of course, the book, The Fifth Vital Sign, that was my response to what I often hear from women, which is, everyone needs to know this stuff. Like, Why wasn't I taught this? So I'm not one to wait for the government to decide this is important. So I just you know, wanted to put what I had... you know, All of this information that took me you know, two decades to assemble into one place. And so thefifthvitalsignbook.com if you want to grab the first chapter for free. But it's available on Amazon and... Um, for all of you science heads out there, there's over a thousand research citations that you can. So you don't take my word for it. Like fact check me, do what you need to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's um, why I love you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I am all about those references. Um, no, it was a phenomenal read, and I added it to the um, book club list in my pregnancy course because I think it's a must read for people, especially going through and understanding preconception. And understanding what people might call the trimester or trimester zero or that three or four months prior to getting pregnant, like what should that look like? And and I think understanding your period is the first thing you should know if you're looking to get pregnant. So that's that's actually the first on our list. Get to know your body first and then get your body and your eggs ready for the sperm. So thank you so, so, so much. I'm so excited to share this episode. It's, um, as you know, I'm just, I'm all about women's health right now because I got a <laughs> huge belly and I'm ready to have this baby. So, <laughs> so thank you for your time today. It was such a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 